Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. I'm producer Cameron Costa, and on today's podcast, Senator Elizabeth Warren is fired up about billionaire taxes and cryptocurrency. There's a new threat out there. It's crypto, and it is being used for terrorist financing. It is being used for drug trafficking. And Jamie Dimon agrees. Her exchange with the J.P. Morgan chief at the Senate banking hearing this week. Strange bedfellows everywhere you go. And regulating airspace while protecting consumers. Columbia law professor Tim Wu on airline consolidation as JetBlue and Spirit await their fate. If you went to a 1970s airplane, it would be the same product, but actually with larger seats. Those conversations plus Taylor Swift steals the show again. CNBC's John Fort joins us. Taylor Swift deserves to be person of the year because she is the counter narrative. In the year of artificial intelligence, she performed songs she wrote in front of a live audience. It's Thursday, December 7th. The anticipation of Friday is right in front of us. You can taste it. And Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. In between the three of us, we have decided that today is Thursday. It took all three of us, too. Yes, it did. And the reason I mentioned September 7th, there was a time one of our former presidents thought it was September 7th. It was Pearl Harbor Day. You called that a day that will live in infamy. No, that would be today. That today is the one, and I, oh God, uh, I'm not going to tell you how many years it's been. I, really, that might take me till nine o'clock to, to figure that out. Was it 1942, 41? I, I think it was 41. So that would be about 80, let's call it roughly 80 years. Or two. Around there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I should really say, let's just, well, Capitol Hill meets Bitcoin. How about that? J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon lashing out at cryptocurrencies yesterday during a hearing on Capitol Hill, suggesting they be banned. I've always been deeply opposed to crypto, Bitcoin, et cetera. You pointed out the only true use case for it is criminals, drug traffickers, anti-money laundering, tax avoidance. If I was the government, I'd close it down. In the past, Diamond has called Bitcoin a hyped up fraud and likened it to a pet rock. In response to a question from Senator Elizabeth Warren, Diamond and other CEOs of large banks who testified yesterday agreed the crypto companies should face the same anti-money laundering regulations as the major financial institutions. And we're going to talk to Senator Warren about all that testimony that took place uh, yesterday about banks. And she's going to join us. You don't want to miss this. Which expression you like, genie's out of the bottle, horses left the barn, toothpaste is out of the tube, Humpty Dumpty's already out. I, I don't see how, I mean, that's not a, obviously a, a uh, no, not realistic. As, not as the SEC is like a, signing off and blessing. Yeah, ETFs. it's not a realistic thing to talk about. I have a lot of pushbacks on the whole notion. I mean, Money laundering, we didn't come up with that term when Bitcoin was invented. So throughout history, 99% of the money laundering has been done not using Bitcoin. And, and it's like anything else. You know, the dollar, you don't want to get rid of the dollar because it's used for money laundering. I mean, we know that. I mean, maybe it's more, maybe it's better Bitcoin, maybe it's easier to do. But, you know, I, I don't think you, you decide you just hate something just because it can be, you know, we've had conversations about all kinds of things about it. it's not... The, the thing itself, it's the wacko that's using it or, or, you know, a lot of things 
you know, a, 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 a car can be a terrible thing if you decide to drive into a parade where there's a bunch of people. Sure, but, but then you have to decide it has enormous... This is the thing. When, when you have dangerous things, you have to decide how much utility they have so that it's a balance, right? So you could say to yourself, I would argue cars are very valuable. They create, create great productivity, economic productivity. They create all sorts of fabulous things that cars do for people. And, and, and yet, and yet, there is a danger uh, about right. them, right? You know that, they're, that, that, that the true Bitcoin zealots think that Bitcoin is better than, has I much know. more stuff than a car could ever have Kathy, in terms of. Kathy Wood, I heard an interview fiat, with her you know, from the, yesterday where she was saying. Decentralization. That she'd been making the case. And, and Kathy Wood had a rough year over the last year, had, had to defend all of her much positions. Better, though, much yeah. better lately. But yeah. she was saying that Bitcoin, she thinks her thesis has been proven because it's not just a risk on asset when you had the banks that got into so much trouble, uh, Silicon Valley Bank and the rest quality. of them. Bitcoin went up, was up by 50% because you didn't have to worry about the counterparty risk. Um, if so it's gonna, that was her argument. If for you it. run a bank, and one of, the big, <laughs> one of the biggest claim benefits of Bitcoin is that it will help the unbanked become banked. You can imagine Jamie. I, I don't. Might I don't. Not I don't be. think that's why Jamie thinks it. Yeah. Well, I, I, look. I, come on. Jamie and Charlie. It certainly and a few wouldn't other be people. Bad. It's probably bad to say. That, you know, whenever you say someone who has an opinion, well, he's got a. You know, he's in hydrocarbons. So, yeah. Right. It, it, right that's, I don't. It, I, oh, yes. I, I, I think that's Jamie's honest opinion. I think Pelosi has decided that, that Republicans don't like uh, tax reform because they're helping their rich no, friends. No, no, no. That's not true. Oh, I thought you were both. That, no, no, that's no. why it's not going anywhere. No. That's no. what that that that, that no, trying, what you, was the issue? It was that was it, the uh, words you put in the guest mouth, yeah. right? But I thought you get. But oh, you <laughs> were kidding. You were kidding when you went. Yes. Oh, yes. you were kidding. Yes. Well, I thought you were saying yeah. It is no, why. Why that is not. I don't think the reason Republicans don't like bigger government and more taxes is just because it affects their pocketbook. Okay. But I, I, I grant I, you that, that, and I don't think Jamie doesn't like crypto right. because. It, so maybe it, maybe it, that's true. We do nothing but just some small shots back. You've got to punch them, you've got to punch them hard, and let them know that. that They've been selling you that somebody had a cup of coffee stint at the UN and then makes eight million bucks after, has real foreign policy experience. It takes an outsider to see this. That you would be voted in the first 20 minutes as the most obnoxious blowhard in America. So <laughs> shut up for a while. I'm going to respond to that. Party. Yes, win the election, but we've got to start getting these issues. This was a Republican debate last night. It's, I mean, I don't know what these four people were doing it for at this point, but uh, maybe there's some, something could happen. But Nikki Haley uh, is the one that it's probably the other three were attacking. I didn't see any of it. Where was it? Uh, News Nation. All right. The, uh, the, hey, you see Drudge says the Republicans hide latest debate so that no one can watch it. Uh, after a week of fundraising, uh, at one point, Chris Christie accused Vivek Ramaswamy of insulting Haley's basic intelligence. Great, a food fight with you know, these people that uh, are only 40 points behind, rather than her positions. But here's the exchange. Maybe it's spicy. Here it is. Look, if you want to disagree on issues, that's fine. And Nikki and I disagree on some issues. But I'll tell you this, I've known her for 12 years, which is longer than he's even started to vote in a Republican primary. <laughs> 
And while we disagree about some issues and we disagree about who should be president of the United States, what we don't disagree on is this is a smart, accomplished woman and you should stop insulting her. Chris, your version of foreign policy experience was closing a bridge from New Jersey to New York. So do everybody a favor, just walk yourself off that stage, enjoy a nice meal, and get the hell out of this race. That was crazy. That's really crazy. Whoa. I think Chris Christie apparently at one point, I didn't see it either, but Chris Christie at one point basically said that they should be focusing on the candidate who wasn't on the stage, Donald Trump. Um, Not Joe Biden. (laughs) I don't know. I know. know. So it's if first attack is going to be the the Republican that's that's been gaining traction, Nikki Haley. Second is going to be the guy who's not on stage. Well, look, and then when do they get to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris? After they figure out the rest of it. They got to figure out the rest of it. (laughs) What I find so fascinating is you now have all of these Democrats, by the way, on Wall Street who are financing or helping, trying to help finance Nikki Haley in the same way they used to be trying to help finance Chris Christie, partially because they don't know if they're how happy they really are with Biden, but mostly because they want whoever they want a contender, anybody who will also be able to throw arrows at Trump. So it's a it's a Somebody totally twisted who was sort it? of version was, of it. Maybe it was Reed. Who was it? I, I, OK, I shouldn't say because I can't remember. But one CEO tweeted something yesterday about how he's supporting. He he ultimately will vote for Biden, but he is supporting Nikki Haley now for that exact reason. That's, that's uh, I mean, the, the the never Trumper contingent of the Democrat. I mean, the Lincoln uh, Foundation, whatever that, that was called. I mean, that's a huge if, and if I, I think if you draw those, what are those things? Venn diagrams. Then, draw Venn, and then even for Trump, there's part of the Democratic Party, the the yeah. dispossessed working class Democrats who, who that, are that, all that in favor. Lost. So yeah. it's like it, it's you a can't very, figure out bedfellows. No. Like we're going to talk Elizabeth Warren and right. Jamie Dimon later. Bedfellows, strange bedfellows everywhere you go. Okay, here it is. Taylor Swift is Time Magazine's Person of the Year. It's probably not surprising, but. Is she the best choice? That is the question of the morning. And guess who is here to weigh in on it? The one and only John Fort. Good morning, sir. What do you think? Andrew, Taylor Swift is an obvious choice for person of the year, and that's why she's the wrong choice. I mean, Swift's Eras Tour is the top-grossing live spectacle in a year that was partly about an economy fully coming out of COVID cloister. It's a juggernaut on track to make more than $2 billion through next year and become the most lucrative tour ever. And while that's amazing, it's not particularly important that the best choices for person of the year have marked a moment in time and what they did in that year not only defined them but defined us churchill in 1940 king in 1963 women in 1975 the computer in 1982 i guess it's fine to choose taylor swift to do what you want time magazine but there's nothing about the unique challenges of 2023 reflected in the choice swift's got nothing to do with artificial intelligence or geopolitical tumult or inflation Okay, maybe inflation a little. Uh, This wasn't even one of Taylor Swift's most significant years creatively. She didn't break out or cross over or even, frankly, put out a significant new album this year. Who's a better choice? Well, Sam Altman's OpenAI drove artificial intelligence into the mainstream the way Jeff Bezos did e-commerce when he won in 1999. Jensen Huang's jaw-dropping economic value uh, created. Uh, Swift's going to sell more magazines, sure. It's harsh. It's harsh. Okay, so hold on. I kind of agree with everything you just said. Okay. By the way, I agree with everything you said, but hold on. Taylor Swift's tour does represent a rare, a very rare in this world today, especially given how fractured the media universe is, 
Um, it, it's, it's a massive win. It's a big push on GDP. It's, it's changed the trajectory, in some cases, of, of cities, at least temporarily. Well, Andrew, on the other hand, let's not overthink this. Yes, Taylor Swift is the first entertainer to get Person of the Year for being an entertainer. Time's been doing this since 1927, and Elvis, the Beatles, Michael Jackson never made the cut. The reason why she represents 2023, Swift embodies the post-COVID shift in spending from goods to services. She also captures the rule-breaking spirit of the digital movement, re-recording old songs to reclaim them and turning her blockbuster concert tour into a blockbuster movie theater experience, like a double flip of the bird to the pandemic. Taylor Swift deserves to be person of the year because she is the counter narrative. In a year when streaming giant Spotify has done three rounds of layoffs, she launched what's likely the biggest concert tour of all time. In the year of artificial intelligence, she performed songs she wrote in front of a live audience. And a year after Giselle Bundchen split from Tom Brady, Taylor Swift proved in 2023 that super rich, successful women in the entertainment industry can still shop for arm candy in the NFL. So, sure, you could claim picking Taylor is Time's cynical ploy to sell magazines, but really, nobody's buying magazines anymore, even for this. No. They did it for the clicks or taps or whatever China's watching our kids do on TikTok. Okay, that was pretty wow, well Wow, that was very well done. Very well done. And I just, just I want to praise the wordsmithing of it all, too. Well, thank you. I work very late at night to make that happen for you guys. And then he wakes up very early in the morning. Indeed. Uh, well, well, I can't complain about that That was actually you. really well done. That, was, that may want to be one of your best efforts because you oh, can sway you. me with either argument on that. Thank you. That's, uh, I live for that. That deal. was a win. You won. you won. You won the game. <laughs> you guys make me feel like Taylor Swift in 2023. I, you could be CNBC's uh, person of the, uh, of the year right there. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Jeff Bezos pays a lower marginal tax rate than a Boston public school teacher, and that is fundamentally wrong. We're covering taxes, crypto, anti-Semitism, and so much more with the senior senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren. Squawk Pod will be right back. You're listening to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. The CEOs of the nation's biggest banks facing lawmakers on Capitol Hill. At one point, Massachusetts Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren asked J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon why cryptocurrency has become an attractive tool for terrorists, drug traffickers, and rogue nations. Here was Dimon's response. I've always been deeply opposed to crypto, Bitcoin, etc. You pointed out the only true use case for it is criminals drug traffickers, anti-money laundering, tax avoidance. If I was the government, I'd close it down. And joining us right now is Senator Elizabeth Warren. Senator, we very much appreciate having you. I'm so curious what was going through your mind uh, when you heard Jamie Dimon's response. Look, when Jamie Dimon and I are in exactly the same place, it's because we have a serious problem in this country. And that is a part of the financial system is being used by terrorists, by drug traffickers, by rogue nations in order to launder money, move money through the system and finance their illegal activities. But keep in mind on this one, it wasn't just Jamie Dimon. We had a long, long table with the CEOs of all of the largest banks in this country. And when I asked the question, should the rules that apply to their banks, and by the way, also apply to stockbrokers and gold traders and credit card companies and credit unions and all the other financial transactors, should those same rules 
to deal with drug trafficking and terrorism financing and rogue nation financing, should the same rules be put in place? Every single one of them said, absolutely. So what this tells me is it's time for Congress to act. Let me ask you, beyond Congress acting, there's a big question mark over whether the SEC is going to act uh, on whether, uh, for example, a Bitcoin ETF will ultimately get approved, which would expand access for, for Americans uh, all over the country, potentially, to invest in Bitcoin. Uh, you've probably watched the price of Bitcoin has risen quite uh, materially, uh, even in the past several months, in large part on the back of uh, that expectation. You know Gary Gensler very well. Do you have any expectation that something like that uh, would take place and would you support it? So I, I don't want to speculate on what the SEC is doing here. I really want to draw an important distinction, and that is the SEC principally is talking about regulation, the kind of monitoring the platforms, the markets, make sure that there's adequate consumer protection and issue that is built into the DNA of the SEC. It's an important thing to do. It's absolutely something they should do. What I'm talking about is the law enforcement aspect of this. It's not over at the regulatory agencies. What I'm talking about is the part of the system that makes sure that banks are not being used for terrorist financing, for example. You know, we have something called the Bank Secrecy Act, which is right. how banks are required to monitor certain kinds of transactions that go through the system. It was written in the 1970s following 9-11, the law enforcement folks went back, looked at what had happened, figured out how the financing had made it through the system. And that's the last time that Congress updated the, mm. the Bank Secrecy Act. What we need to do is we need to update it again because there's a new threat out there. It's crypto and it is being used for terrorist financing. It is being used for drug trafficking. North Korea is using it to pay for about half of its nuclear weapons program. We can't allow that to continue. Uh, Senator, let me ask you this. We had a guest uh, on earlier in the broadcast who I would argue is a, a Bitcoin um, proponent, if you will. And he said, look, J.P. Morgan just paid $5 billion uh, in fines uh, over anti-money laundering and, and, and other uh, uh, activities that, that the government uh, thought were, were either illegal or uh, illicit, if you will. And how should we think about Bitcoin as it relates to U.S. dollar cash and how, and how money gets, gets moved around? Well, I, I'm afraid I don't quite understand the argument. If, if the point is that we need tighter money laundering rules or better enforcement uh, for all of the banks, fine, let's make the case, let's go do it. But that's not an excuse for saying in the meantime, uh, terrorists can use Bitcoin in order to finance their operations, in order to raise money around the world. We can't just say, oh, then that makes it okay for North Korea to use Bitcoin to help pay for its nuclear weapons program, or for Iran to be able to move money around, or for Russia to be able to right. avoid sanctions. This is about saying the same rules that apply to everyone else need to apply to, to crypto as well. Senator, I want to pivot the conversation for a moment. There was a fascinating sure. case uh, that uh, was uh, seen in the Supreme Court uh, this week that has a huge implication potentially on a wealth tax in the future uh, because it gets at the very issue of whether uh, the U.S. government uh, constitutionally can tax unrealized gains. You've been a proponent uh, of a wealth tax for quite some time. Uh, this case obviously is not about a wealth tax specifically, but the mechanics of it may have an impact. 
and I wanted to get your thinking and understanding uh, of how you're looking at that case and as it may relate to a wealth tax in the future. You know, part of the, the point I think we have to look at is that the very, very, very wealthy have now figured out that they don't actually have to have any income in order to do everything they want to do, in order to have access to their wealth. Look at Elon Musk. When he decided that he wanted to buy Twitter, he said, you know, I'll just show the bank that I have this bucket of stock. And he said, I'm going to take all my Tesla stock, I'm going to put it over here, and look what happens. He can borrow against that, and then he can make the purchase of Twitter. The billionaires can buy their yachts, can finance their, you know, 87-room houses, all on the notion that they never cashed out, they never sold any. And that creates a terrible problem in this country because it means the people who are paying taxes are Boston public school teachers instead of the wealthiest people in this country. So I want to Not try right. something. So, so, Senator, I want to try something out on you. What do you think sure. about the idea of, rather than a wealth tax per se, saying that anybody who is going to take a loan against their assets of some number, we can make up the number, we can make it a big number, um, but uh, a loan that's collateralized against assets at some level, that money gets taxed. What you're doing is driving in the right direction because you figured out the way that the billionaires finance their lavish lifestyles but, without paying any taxes. But isn't, no, that, saying, isn't I'm, that potentially I'm a fair way for those like who look at the fairness? <laughs> but for those who look at the fairness argument and say, look, unrealized gains are unrealized gains. But if in this case, you can specifically say, look, these are the equivalent of unrealized gains. Let's tax that. It, it is the minimalist approach to it. And it certainly moves in the right direction. But let me make my point. You know, if we just said, if you've got more than $50 million in assets and we put in place a two-cent tax on your wealth, and by the way, people pay taxes, pay property taxes all the time on unrealized gains. You pay your property taxes on your home. But a two-cent wealth tax, think what that would mean in this country right now. It would mean that we could provide universal child care for every one of our babies. We could put much more money into our public school system. We could provide free post-high school, technical school, two-year college, four-year college. We could cancel all student loan debt, and we could still have a lot of money left over. The very wealthiest in this country are paying only a tiny, tiny fraction of their wealth while ordinary Americans, middle-class families, firefighters, and teachers are paying a much bigger share. And that's just fundamentally unfair. In a democracy, progressive taxation means that those who are wealthier end up paying more on their taxes, and that's not what we have right now. Senator Warren, it's an income tax that we have right now, and I think the idea of a wealth well, tax throws a lot of people off. And you can point, you can point to the idea of real estate taxes but in reality, your home is not assessed, reassessed every year and pay higher and higher prices on it. And when you do have towns that get overly aggressive on real estate taxes, 
you end up pushing out the elder, elder, older people who are no longer working every day. We drive senior citizens out. That's what happens in our area, too, when things go to extremes like that. I understand an income tax. I you understand know, the way let, let of not... Just push. But, but, but can I just finish very quickly, sure, and then I'll, of I'll, I'll save the time back over? I understand the idea of wanting to get at the idea that these wealthy people are living off of things. And I, I think Andrew's idea is a good one of, of saying if you're using your your equity as as something that you're living off of as income you should be taxed on that but the idea of just a wealth tax in itself really upends things and we can say that we're going to only go after 50 million dollars and above but we all know that income taxes started out that way too and it, and it's gotten to be a bigger and bigger part of everybody's number and the idea of an unrealized gain that i never see being taxed is anathema that just doesn't at all seem fair in any way, shape, or form, and it seems impractical to try and figure out how to Look, how to actually figure it out. Let, let me be clear. As I said, I think Andrew is moving in the right direction. I'm just making the case overall because the system is no longer fair. When we first put an income tax in place, remember, we had marginal rates that were vastly higher than they are today for the very wealthiest in this country. The idea was the richer you are, the total number of dollars you pay will be more because your income is higher. And so you want to get a fraction of that that seems fair across the board. That has now been stood on its head. So the people who are paying the highest percentage of their wealth are middle class families. And the wealthiest, the billionaires in this country, are paying virtually nothing. Jeff Bezos pays a lower marginal tax rate than a Boston public school teacher. And that is fundamentally wrong. And the idea that you say, oh, I'm worried that billionaires won't be able to be represented in Congress and taxes will get out of hand, give me a break. It's the billionaires who just got the tax cut from Donald Trump that's turned out to be, what, nearly $3 trillion? Most of that money went to millionaires and billionaires. It made the tax system even worse. You want to have a democracy, it's got to be that everybody pays a fair share, and that fair share should have something to do with the kind of wealth you've got. Right now, we're putting that burden on the middle class and giving billionaires a free ride. I think that's wrong. Senator, I want to touch on a couple of other topics while we have you, uh, one of which, and I think a lot of people uh, saw it just yesterday, um, and to be honest with you, I think some were horrified by it, and I, I'm curious what you thought. Um, Three of the uh, major presidents of universities uh, were, were, were at a hearing uh, where they were asked if uh, genocide to the Jews uh, was something uh, that was something within the code of conduct and that should be allowable on campuses. And uh, across the board, uh, those university presidents, including one from Harvard uh, and one from Penn, uh, effectively equivocated uh, and said that it was. They then have since come back and gone online and, uh, and, and tried to take it back or say something else. But it, it's raising lots of questions about what kind of speech uh, should be allowed on campus. There's obviously big, big questions about sort of the role of the progressive left in terms of uh, some of that speech that's taking place on campuses today. And I wanted you to weigh in on it. Advocating for genocide is fundamentally wrong, full stop. Uh, and uh, we just can't have this. Here's where I'm really worried right now. Um, the, we need to be in America where we can disagree with each other. 
we can argue, we can talk about policies, we can talk about outcomes, and we can do it in a vigorous way. But instead, what has started to happen is we have unleashed hate in this country, and that is, that is wrong. I talk, to, I talk to Jewish moms back in Massachusetts who tell me that they are afraid to take their toddlers to um, an activity at the synagogue because they're worried the synagogue will be targeted. I talked to a Palestinian mom just last week who said she's afraid for her children to go outside. People feel threatened. The war in the Middle East is something that's being felt personally here at home, and I understand that. But we cannot let it fuel hate. It's on all of us. It's on all of us. But what, do you, what, do you ascri- what do you ascribe some of, some of what we're seeing on the college campuses, especially as it relates to the anti-Semitism that is just so, so blatant? Um, it's, it's so surprising. And I'll say I'm an American Jew. I, just, I, I, I feel like I have woken up to something that I didn't appreciate. I, I don't think I, I don't know if it was always there and under, under the surface. The fact that it's now allowed to surface in this way and I think a lot of, of, of people who are looking at this say that there's a, a hypocrisy to it all because uh, in so many other ways uh, we have tried to protect, uh, and, and I believe that the progressive left in particular has tried to protect uh, what, may, what might be described as um, you know, uh, marginalized communities, uh, minorities, and other things. But when it comes to this, for some reason, it doesn't seem to uh, be resonating in the same way. You know, uh, there's no place for anti-Semitism on our college campuses, anywhere in our country. There's no place for anti-Palestinian sentiment on our campuses or anywhere else in our country. Hate is wrong. And calling out a group and hate all attached to a single group is wrong. It's fundamentally wrong, and we all have to be willing to say that. What did they learn in colleges, Senator, that allowed them to think that if it's uh, leveled at at, uh, Jewish people, it's okay? The same people that were marching with Black Lives Matter are now the ones, or some of them, uh, that would, you know, go to the mat and and be out every day marching for that, are some of the people now saying genocide to the Jews. Where did that, how did that happen on liberal college campuses? Calling for genocide is wrong. Leaders no, should no, make that. You keep that, saying that. I, well, I understand that. But how did, I, I mean, it came from somewhere. You don't, you don't think the progressive and, left has any culpability in, in, in driving us to this point right now, Senator? I, th- I think that what has happened is that people feel the pain of the Middle East, and they feel it on both sides very personally. I talk to Israelis who have family members, that they have lost family members who are hostage, were taken hostage. I've held people when they have cried. I have also talked with Palestinians who are frantically searching for family members from a distance, searching for family members in Gaza. This is something that people are feeling here. And for that to give rise to hatred of a whole group is wrong, and we need to fight back against it. It is so important at this moment to say that we can disagree with each other, we can argue with each other about the appropriate policies for the United States to take and for other governments to take, but that is not an excuse for hating a whole group of people. Real, real quick, do you think that these, these uh, the leaders of these universities, the three that you saw, 
should still be in their jobs. You've, you've, you've been very outspoken about other people and their jobs. I'm curious about these people and their jobs. Look, they have all said, I think, they have all said that they are wrong. And if you can't lead, if you can't stand up and say what is right and wrong, very much in the extreme right. cases, and these are extreme cases, okay. then you've got a problem. Senator Warren, uh, we very much appreciate uh, you joining us. Uh, we wish you a very happy holidays. We hope to talk to you again you very, very soon. Next on Squawk Pod, the airline deals hoping to take off. JetBlue and Spirit are awaiting a decision on their merger from a federal judge. And Columbia law professor Tim Wu is out with an op-ed in The New York Times, where he argues consolidation in the industry is a net negative for consumers. One of the most important pieces of data in this case is that JetBlue itself noticed or analyzed or found out that the prices go by 30% when Spirit leaves. So they have the sense that if they eliminate Spirit, they'll be able to raise prices at least by 17, maybe by 30% on all those routes. We're back right after this. This is Squawk Pod. Stand by, Joe. Here's Mike. Q. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC Live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick uh, and Andrew Ross Walker. I don't know if we mentioned it, but it's Thursday. Best day, uh, best day of the week. A little close to Monday, uh, but um, the anticipation of Friday is, is right in front of us. You can taste it. You, you almost can. The trial over JetBlue's $3.8 billion acquisition of Spirit Airlines is nearing an end. A federal judge earlier this week raised the possibility of allowing the deal to continue contingent on JetBlue divesting more assets. Our next guest has an op-ed in the New York Times exploring the impact of the airline industry's consolidation on consumers, questioning whether it's caused more harm than previously thought. And joining us with more on this right now is Columbia Law School professor Tim Wu. Tim, of course, served as an advisor to the Biden administration on technology and competition policy. And Tim, obviously this matters. The airline mm-hmm. industry is a huge part of our economy right now, ties yeah. things together. What's your, what's your commentary that bigger is better? I just think that the record is that every one of these airlines, when they merge, end up with lower quality for consumers, more seats packed in, and, and various forms of price fixing. So I think that the judge... Uh, has an anti-competitive merger in front of him should block it. Because you're talking about not necessarily a monopoly, there's a lot of different carriers, but I guess in each market, maybe one carrier that, that becomes the dominant force changes things? Yeah, and part of this is obeying the will of Congress. You know, Congress passed a law in 1950, the Anti-Merger Act, that said if a merger substantially reduces competition, doesn't have to create a monopoly, substantially reduces right. competition, it is illegal. They were trying to you know, prevent over-concentration. In airlines, it's all about individual routes. And one of the most important pieces of data in this case is that uh, you, uh, JetBlue itself noticed or analyzed or found out that the routes go up, the prices go up by 30% when Spirit leaves. So they have the sense that if they eliminate Spirit, they'll be able to raise prices at least by 17, maybe by 30% on all those routes. Yeah. Can I ask you a more philosophical question? Because sure. I, by the way, I don't disagree with you as it relates to this specific transaction. I think there's a, a very fair argument to be made that this is a, a blockable, a blockable deal. But you made a much larger argument in the piece um, about service levels, about the seats being built. There's the whole, you know, yeah. j- just every, that, and that's not taken into consideration in terms of what's happened. Yeah. The flip side is you could argue that airline. Uh, Travel, air travel has been democratized, right? You know, it was a thing for people who were wealthy and maybe maybe uh, upper middle class in the 60s and 70s. Now 
you know, it feels like, I don't want to say anybody, but a lot of people can actually buy a ticket. I'm not saying that, and the ticket prices have gone up, but on a relative basis, inflation adjusted, you'd say it's actually maybe even a, a, a deal or a steal. Right. And so how do you, how do you as, as a, uh, an academic, but also somebody who's thinking about this in an antitrust way, yeah. consider it? I mean, it depends how far you go back. I mean, I, I agree that in, if we're going back to the 70s, I think it's true in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, not that many people could fly. It was almost like computing. Who owned a computer in the 60s? Right. It wasn't like us. You know, I mean, that's a little more extreme. And then I think there was, in fact, there has been a decrease in prices. I think it stopped uh-huh. over the last 10 or 15 years as okay. we allowed Delta, as we allowed right. American, as we allowed United and, to buy These everybody. airlines, though, have not always flourished. They've had some pretty rough times. Even recently, their well, stocks have been under pressure, too. That's almost part of the business model because every time they've had real problem, they get a bailout. You know, they just had well, a but, so, but, 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 here's, but that's the secondary question. So there is, I mean, you know more about this than I do about uh, antitrust law. There are uh, sort of views about failing companies, right? Yeah. Sometimes we allow companies to merge when we think they're failing. The, the uh, return on, on equity or return on investment or return on capital in the airline business is not, it's not a wonderful I actually, business. Well, I, think I want it's, to disagree. In the 2010s, the airlines were extraordinarily profitable. They were year after year. American American well, When you say extraordinary possible, profitable okay. on, a, on, a, on a ROI basis or on a... Um, uh, Given that they're an essential I think we're, service. Yeah, I think we're talking know, about maybe 10%. So compared they may be, to, compared to it, other utilities, you know, that we think about where people have to take them. Right. You know, like the train, like the, you know, like the other things that are essential to the economy. If those are making massive profits... And well, when you also, say massive profits, if I sorry. was making 10% of my money, would you say that's a massive profit? What's a number... That, you don't really I, want the government paying for all of this and winding up like well, Amtrak. How about they were, the they were a good, solidly profitable? I'll put it that way. Okay. Like American Airlines made eight billion, nine billion. The CEO said we're never going to lose money again. Right. Um, you know they, they were, were solidly profitable, and they have <laughs> yeah. what's that? They were wrong, though. I mean, they they were gone. wrong, but then when they have trouble, they get money from the government to support them. COVID over is different. I think COVID yeah. is different. COVID was. They also the got money in bankruptcy. They got about seventy million in bankruptcy. Proceedings over the early thousands. 9-11, they got another huge jump of money. Okay, but 9-11 and COVID, I think, are things that were kind of out of their control. Well, there's always going to be something. Right. It's the nature of their business. You know, they could also save the money for shocks instead of having taxpayers. But, you know, on, shock where the government the shuts bigger, down. The bigger picture is I think they started. Tim and I are together on that one, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I think I there was an enormous, there was a time. But like, right. compared to, they're kind of a tech industry. Compare them to, like, you know, computers. Computers have gotten way cheaper over time and gotten better. Airline service, you know, hard drives have gotten lower. Airlines just kind of, good look, if you went to a 1970s airplane, right. it would be the same product, but actually with larger seats. Uh, the 90s. Not necessarily. These things are much more fuel efficient. There's a lot of things that go It's a little more fuel today. efficient, but essentially. I'll give you actually one, and I, I don't, I will just want, and I don't know yeah. if you give that, if you create value for this. Yeah. There's so many more flights, meaning used to be there'd be one flight, two flights a day. Now there's 10, 20, 30 flights that are available. Do you give... Is there, is, that's, that's a value to the system that you can get on the plane to go to LAX at 9 a.m. and you can get on at 10 a.m. and at 11 a.m. and 12 a.m. Whereas, you know, 30 years ago, I don't, and again, I don't know how you substantiate. I think it's a good argument that, not to let JetBlue by spirit, by the way, that there are a lot of routes. Yeah. Can I ask you very quickly, there's yes. another article, I'm pointing to the New York Post today, yeah. but it talks about New Mexico investigators. They set up fake accounts for kids using artificially intelligent, artificial intelligence-generated photos, created accounts for kids who were 13-year-old girls and things, found out all of these sexual predators who came after them on, on yeah. these meta-social sites. Nothing being done about it. It is an ongoing scandal. Horrible pictures that were of genitalia. Scandal. No way to block these things. Sugar daddy saying, I'll pay you $5,000 a month to be 
my sugar baby. It is an ongoing scandal. Social media has become the new tobacco, except if it's worse than lung cancer, it's like sexual exploitation. And I, I, it's shocking to me that Congress has not done anything. States are trying to do things. Federal judges are stopping them. It is a scandalous, terrible situation, and it's embarrassing for all the lawmakers involved. Thank you. Uh, we're going to keep pushing this. I know you're working on another piece. Come back. Yeah. Sure. Tim, they have, they have pods. If you're lucky enough to, to be in the front of the plane, they have these pods <laughs> that, where the seat goes all the way down. And you have entertainment options. You can watch, like, Superbad, uh, the, the, the movie while uh, the flight goes. Have you been in one of those pods? Have, you don't I've think been. that's an improvement? For, I think they They do still have, oh. the, they have the gross chicken. You know, on the 70s airplanes, they had yeah, I mean, a lounge in economy. I'm not saying it's a good price. They had a lounge, a piano lounge in economy class. I agree that things have gotten better in first class. You've been in a pod? I, the pods are good. Pod people? Uh, pods are good, but I'm just saying, you know, for the people of this country, pods. airlines have become uncomfortable, smaller, more expensive. A man of the people. I'm you're, middle yeah, seat, yeah, yeah. If you're going row across, 33. If you're don't, going don't, to, uh, uh, New York to L.A. and yeah. you get on a plane that doesn't have a pod and you're lucky enough to be in first class, aren't you disappointed? I am. I think <laughs> the piano bar in economy was pretty you good. you got to look at Seat Guru before you book your plane ticket. Oh. So you can figure out what kind of seats know they the have. Know the trick. Know the trick. Some planes don't have the pods. They That's true all too. have the pods. Tim, I just saying compared to other industries, right. airline has so airlines it's the same last price 15 as years it was in the 70s. Tim, it's much. the same price. It's cheaper. It used to be. They have not improved the way other tech industries have. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for tuning in. Here on Squawk Pod, we show you the highlights from our TV broadcast, Squawk Box, which is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin every weekday morning on CNBC, starting at 6 Eastern and going all the way until 9. You can catch them live on TV, on our CNBC app, or you can keep catching the highlights on Squawk Pod wherever you're listening now. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. And we are clear. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>